In the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. We need Gordon, can you check this out? As you heard last week, we were talking about our journey with God, and it was up and until we went to India and left India. And today I'd like to continue on with that continuing journey. Those DVDs were actually uh, used up at or taken up at Mount Tambourine a month ago when I was asked to go and give my testimony uh, to a, a, a spring convention of something they called it. And, and I was able to share in three sessions. Well, to condense it down is a little bit difficult, and, uh, and yet that's what I'm going to try to do. The theme of our life is simply this, the we, Glad and I, have put our hope in the living God. And that's truly been our experience, that our God is the living God. There's nothing too hard from him, there's no person outside his realm of control, there's nothing, nowhere, any, anything that's outside the hands or the control of our God, the living God. So... The theme really was this, from Psalm 138-39, that God has plans, his plans, for our lives. When I say my life, I mean yours as well. I mean, these are scriptures that tell us about God and what he does for you and what he's prepared to do for you. And David writes in Psalm 139, O Lord, you both precede me, you're always there ahead of me, and you follow me. And the other thing is that every single day of my life already recorded in God's book, if you can get your mind around that, you're pretty clever. But to understand that this is the kind of God we have is something. But I just love the other thing that David then says. He says, you place your hand of blessing on my head. Well, Glad and I long ago realized that when we became believers in Christ, we became instruments, actually masterpieces of his love and grace and mercy, so that we should be available to do the good works that God had planned, already planned for us to do. So it's not like we were stepping out and saying, God bless this that I want to do, but much rather, God, here I am, what is it that you want me to do? And as the Lord has led us and guided us, we went to India in 1963. We returned from India in 1978, and I shared that story last week of our going and of our returning, every bit of it under God's control, almost reluctantly returning to Australia. And in various places, we were serving in Adelaide, in Perth, in different areas. But always I was getting these words, will will you come over and help us? And I began to realize that this again was an opportunity that God was giving to us to go and help in the work that was emerging in different places. And strangely enough, that first request came from Kananurra in Western Australia because there they wanted to have a Bible school for indigenous people. But a Bible school for indigenous people and especially tribal people is very different to a Bible school in a big city And what needed to happen was that rather than teach the young people, which is normally what we would think to do in a Bible school, there, first of all, we had to teach the old people because the old people need to know more than the young people need to know. They need to know it first, if you know what I mean. And so they gathered the elders from in and around Kananurra and brought them into Kananurra where they set up a Bible school. Well, 
got a promise not to laugh. I spent three months up there. The first two months were learning how Aboriginal people can remember their tribal story from woe to go. They know it. Every one of them knows it. And how do they know it? Well, I discovered they know it in three ways, from three different formats. First of all, it's chronology. The second thing they know is by their art, their, their drawings. And the third is by their dance or by their acting out the story. And these three things were in my mind as we were there sharing with these folk. So I went into town and I got 11 metres of lawn, 90 centimetres wide, 11 metres long, and I began to draw God's story. Now, promise, don't laugh, because I can't draw to save my soul. And the only words on that whole drawing were simply God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and after that, it became simply little word pictures of God's story. And each one, and you can see the panel there, it's not very clear, but the first question that had to be answered, who came first? Did God come first or did Satan come first? Where does Satan fit within this God story bit? Because Satan usurps God's place, God, Satan usurps God's authority, he establishes his kingdom and seeks to override God's authority in every case. And so the big issue was, did Satan come first? Well, how do you draw angels? How do you draw Satan? Well, what I decided to do, and you can see on, on there, that I tried to draw some supposedly heavenly beings facing toward God in, a, in, a, in an attitude of worship. But then I tried to draw equally glorious beings. I, I mean, Satan has his angels. They're still angels, but they got their back to God and they're doing their own thing. Well, that seemed to be enough. Because once they've got Satan and God worked out and who was where, why and how, that satisfied these old people that I was talking to. And then I went on to try and draw some of the, thanks, good, try and draw some of the aspects of the story. Creation, the serpent being cast out, and the whole 11 meters. And what we then did was to put that on a roll, and one of the brothers up there, John Braden, a dear friend of mine, he, he stretched an electrical cord, uh, a cable from this post to that post to that post, and every day we, we rolled out one more meter of the 11 meters and pinned it up with clothes pegs and talked about that story. And then after I'd been rattling on in, in, in whichever way I could with an odd st song or a story, then they'd go away, the folk, and they'd sit over here, the men there, the ladies there, and they'd chatter away in their language. And all of a sudden, one of them would jump up, a man or a woman, and come over and point to the chart, da 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 And they would, it was happening. Then they'd go away, and I said, well, you draw better than I can. You go and draw your, your way. So they'd go away, and they'd draw it. And then in the evening, we used to, have, we used to act out the story and sit back and watch how it got into their hearts and heads 
And for me, that was a, one of the highlights of my missionary years of experience. 50 years of it now. But I look back at that couple of weeks or months up there in Kununurra as some of the highlights of it. Uh, that chart has sort of spread around a bit. It's gone to Fiji and a few other places. And these were the lovely old people and a few youngsters as well. And you can see the chart sort of spread out there. And there are some memory verses that Val Braden put together on the wall over there. So all in all, it was a really wonderful experience for me to be able to go on that. But then the next call came from communist countries. Because what had happened, as you know, that communism had been a God-denier, an atheistic force across the world. And at one stage, it was called the communist crisis, and it was going to be the huge antichrist. It was going to be this, that, or the other. But then you know and I know that around about 1989, 90, around about that period, people rebelled right across the communist world. And as they did, with communism proving to be an empty shell, they'd suffered. Everybody's individual homes had been confiscated by the government. The government put up these huge, great monstrosities of, of grey concrete, and you, your family, was forced to live in one of those. The government supplied the power. They supplied the water. They supplied the hot water. They supplied the gas. They supplied everything... And you had to kowtow. And in the corner of your flat, they used to put a, a radio speaker. Not a radio for you to dial up. You couldn't even turn it off. And there came the propaganda day after day after day after day. Well, when we got to Romania, we actually lived in... Where is that spot? We lived in that particular unit there. Down here was the government spy. He was number one unit, and he controlled every single person who went up and down those stairs to every single... There was no freedom. There was nothing at all. And the other thing that was happening is that the, when communism fell, the entire economy collapsed. There was nothing. We had a supermarket around the street from us, and it had two items. Every shelf was jam-packed full. There were two items in it. Provided you wanted pickled onions or pickled cucumbers, sorry and soap powder, then you could buy as much as you want, but there's nothing else. And there was just nothing to buy. And people would sit out on the side of the street. If you look carefully, I don't know whether you can see, but that lady there has got a goose under her arm, and she's trying to sell a goose, that lady there, selling a goose. If she sells the goose, then she'll be able to buy something else. Others had wizened potatoes and wizened up carrots and wizened up onions. And they were trying to sell at least five, five potatoes, three carrots. Someone was there with pens in their pocket. And will you buy my pen? Will you buy my pen? Because life was just absolutely awful. The whole economy had collapsed. There was nothing to buy. And I would go out, not with a shopping list, I would go out with money in my pocket and see what I could find, so glad and I could live. It was really difficult. I tell you what, the day I went into one shop and I found tripe, it was like heaven. Oh, tripe. Oh, I'd never seen, oh, tripe has never tasted so good. But in the midst of all of this, <clears throat> there was a complete and utter breakdown of morality. You can't read that, but that sign there says that if you want an abortion, it will cost you one dollar. And there were 2,000 abortions a day in some of those places. 
Before communism fell, Ceausescu was the president and he would not allow any form of family planning whatever. He gave women a medal when they had their 10th baby. He gave them a bonus when they had a baby after the 10th. But that was, that was just too much. There was no food. There was, no, there was nothing. It was awful. And so you've heard about the, the Romanian orphans. Well, they weren't orphans. They were abandoned children. Children who were simply abandoned. We arrived in our city of Subiu, went to the home of a believer, and they just had a new baby. And she came home with this one-month-old baby. Uh, she came home, and there was this one-month-old baby. And she said, I was the only mother out of five who took her baby home. The other four mothers simply walked out of the hospital and left their baby and said, you look after it. You forced us to have this child. You look after it. And so that was what was going on in Romania. There were literally thousands, thousands of children simply abandoned. And the believers had been persecuted. Many of them had been in jail. You've heard about the underground church. You've heard about Brother Andrew and smuggling Bibles and all those kinds of things that were going on. Well, that was a reality, and uh, I could tell you many stories about that. But what had happened now was that we have a whole young generation not the old people, the young people. They'd been conned into believing that, that communism was the one and only system. They'd been conned into believing there's no God. They'd been conned into believing that, and this all had burst around them into nothingness. And what did they do? They began rushing into churches. And so when they rushed into the church, they were so crowded. This particular church that I can show you there, it looks pretty orderly at this moment there, that church there. The first day I arrived, there were people standing all around there, all down the aisles, on either side, up at the back there, the balcony, absolutely jam-packed. While we were speaking, while we were having communion, people were shouting out, will you tell us how to be saved? Tell us how to be saved. Can you? And the elders had to get up and say, stop, stop, stop. We will tell you how to be saved, but first we have to do something that our master has commanded us to do. We need to remember him in this way, and one when that's over, we will tell you how to be saved. And so they used to have a gospel service after every communion service, because they were, and I was there to watch 40 people coming forward to receive Christ. It was an amazing thing. And this was going on and on and on. It was an amazing thing. But the problem was, that they'd had no Bibles. For 50 years, they'd had no Bibles. So the whole churches were simply running on the memory of the old people. John, good memory? You need a good memory. What does the Bible say? What? And of course, these were young university-trained people, so they were trained to question. And so they'd say to these old people with their memory, well, what does the Bible say? Well, I think it said something about well, that's not good enough. So there was this incredible cry for help. And that kind of Macedonian call came to me. Come and help us. We've established a Bible school. It's in the middle of winter. Why winter? Well, you see, summer, spring, summer, when the sun's shining, you've got to get out and grow things because you've got nothing to eat otherwise. You only eat what you grow. If you don't grow it, you don't eat. And so there was a big problem for people. They couldn't stop growing to come to Bible school. So during winter, they came to the Bible school. And of course, for Glad and me, it was a bit tough. 
The Bible school was held just near Subiu. This is the major city in the center of town, about 300,000 people at the time. And just nearby, Glow had bought a house and they'd uh, set up a center there. Then one of the Indian, one of the Romanian uh, churches or one of the brothers there had set up a Bible school called Golgotha. And so they came and asked us, could we go and help them? Minus 25. We left Melbourne at 43 degrees and arrived three or four days later in Romania, minus 25. It was just, just such a huge, huge shock. But the joy of it all to teach six hours a day, six days a week, with teaching sessions in churches every night of the week virtually, and many non-stop teaching the Word of God for six months. I tell you what, it's a Bible teacher's paradise. It's just like heaven on earth to have a... And the incredible joy of that, and I was able to go and continue teaching there for a long time. And many of those young people are now church leaders. And if you ask um, Keith and Bronwyn, they'll tell you that many of these young people that are there have moved across the country and they've helped establish churches. They're church leaders now. Some have become missionaries in other areas. And that was the joy that we had because we got this Macedonian call, come over and help us. But then the same call, well, my sweet glad, of course, being who she is, you know what she's going to do, not sit and listen to me. She's heard me more than enough. So she went around looking for somewhere and what could she do, and she'd heard about these orphanages. So she went, and in our city there was an orphanage with 250 babies under three. Beautiful, beautiful children. She walked in, and there were three babies to a cot, They were allocated three nappies a day, irrespective. They were never cuddled, they were never hugged, they were never anything. The carers all sat in their room, yacked and smoked, and the kids were just left. A child was given a bottle on a rolled-up towel. It was a Coca-Cola bottle with a, a, a teat on the end, and they would, if it fell off, then too bad. The children, it was just beyond. Glad used to come home to me and say, can't we adopt some? Can't we adopt some? She says, only a dozen. (laughs) She loved them. She got roused by the other carers. Who's going to do this when you go, they said. Who's going to love these children like you do when when you go? Don't spoil them. These kids didn't know how to snuggle. They were like cardboard. They were just like boards. They didn't know how to just snuggle. I just watched your baby snuggle in. They didn't know how to do that. Didn't know. It, it was heartbreaking. And that's my glad. That's her ministry. That's what she just absolutely loved to do. Then I got exactly the same cry from Kazakhstan. Now, where's Kazakhstan? Well, I used to think it's 3,000 Ks from everywhere. It, it just absolutely was. We had to fly via Moscow. And when I got to Moscow, I looked for my luggage and they said, it's in the plane, go and get it yourself. So I had to walk right across the tarmac and get my luggage out of the plane and bring it across the tarmac to where the the security and all the other guys were. And they just waved us through. It was chaos. 
in the plane. The poor hostesses were bringing the food down the thing and the food down the middle, of, but it was on a trolley that only had three wheels. And so they had to walk along like this. So they handed me a, um, a cold chicken leg, uh, a dry bun and an apple. That was your meal for this 3,000-kilometre journey. Uh, talk about chaos, absolutely chaos. Well, there was a Bible school there. But before I got to the, well, started a Bible school later, I got there and there seemed to be absolutely nobody to teach the Bible. The education department said, we are now free Kazakhstan, we no longer are communist, we are free, so there is Christianity in the world, we need a lecturer for Christianity. We have a whole lot of school teachers and you must give them a one-day seminar to teach them what Christianity is. Praise the Lord. Well, it was great. So, guess who? I, I was the only one. Then the prisons rang and said, look, we've got, we think Christianity might have an answer for some of our bad prisoners. Do you think so? Oh, yes, of course we do. Then would you come and teach our guards, please, what Christianity is? What a privilege. I had opportunities one after another at this sort of level to try and teach people. And God opened the door and then I go to the church on Sunday. Well, guess what? Glad's into the orphans again. <laughs> Those poor kids, I'm to- uh, she tells me, were not allowed off the potty until they performed. Uh, and they were there for hours, some of the poor kids. Yeah. Anyhow, that was the church. That church was jam-packed again with young people. And they had a strange thing. I've never seen it happen here in Australia, but while I was preaching, suddenly people would come forward and the pastor would say to me, sit down, please, they're repenting. And so, so I'd have to sit down while these people repented and got sorted out and then they'd go back to their seat and then I'd say, all right, finish up and, and come and carry on. Services went on for hours. It was just... Con- 40, 50 people. The first day I was there, they had a baptism. 70 people got baptized. It was amazing. But then came the need for a Bible school again. There was no Bible school there. And so they gathered together this dozen students. And the amazing thing was that there was a Kazakh. Now, Kazakhs nominally are Muslim. But this young man here came, and so did he. This man was a North Korean. What had happened in... in, in Kazakhstan is that when Stalin uh, was in power, he told the Kazakhs they had to do the work and they said, go jump, we're not going to do any work for you. Why would we? So he slaughtered four million of them. Now they were like the Mongolian people. They were herders. They were people with their camels, their sheep, and they wandered out and they lived out and then they came and they were just like that. So when... Stalin told them to dig potatoes and plant cabbages and beans and all that kind of caper. No, that's not what we do. We've never done that. So he killed them, four million. No sweat when you're a Stalin. Now that communism is gone, Stalin thought, what do I do? I need someone to plant potatoes and grow rice and whatever else. So he brought North Koreans in, because it's communist, and so he could click his fingers and the North Koreans said, oh yeah, we can send over a couple of hundred thousand, and they did. And they came and they did all the dirty work. Well, by the time I got to uh, Kazakhstan in 1993, there were already 20 Korean churches. 
because the Koreans heard about their brothers in Kazakhstan and now the doors open and they were in there within half an hour. And they began to preach and people responded and it was just an amazing thing to find these... But still there was no one there with the knowledge of the scriptures. Some Koreans came from America saying... Presbyterians they were, they said, we'll set up a Bible school, a Bible seminary. Great. But they couldn't speak English well. They couldn't speak Russian at all. So guess who they turned to? They turned to me. So again, six hours a day, six days a week, teaching this particular group of students. And they've gone on to become something really special for God. I Look, it's marvelous being an instrument in God's hands. The opportunities that he gives you when you're available to God and, and there God opens doors in ways that you would never. Now, it wasn't easy, I can tell you. The Russian mafia was everywhere. How do you get around when there's no bus service? How do you get around from this place to that place? Well, I'll tell you how I got around. I used to stand with Glad beside me on the side of the road and hold up a dollar. And a car would come and stop and I'd say, Lenina Prospector. I think that says Lenin Road. Da, hop in. And he'd take us there. No, no, that fellow wasn't going that way. To come back home, I would stand out on the side of the road and hold up a dollar. But then we heard about a missionary who was killed there for $50. God put his hand to protect us. It was just something you wouldn't believe. A country completely chaotic, completely out of order. Everybody, it seemed, was floating on a haze of vodka. Unbelievable. The train drivers, the pilots, the bus, everybody just absolutely drunk from 8 in the morning on vodka. And the whole day, vodka, vodka, vodka. The poor widows were being paid six bottles of vodka. That was their pension for the month. They had to go outside and sell it on the street to get any kind of cash or, or exchange their vodka for three eggs or exchange their vodka for four potatoes. It was just a pathetic situation. And then I got a call to come over to South Korea. South Korea is an amazing place. If you go there and just understand that in 1945, the people were living in mud huts on on dirt floors and they had been slaves of the Chinese for 300 years, then slaves of the Japanese for many years, and they were a people absolutely destitute, a people who had been oppressed and suppressed and whatever else. And if you go there today and see what a dynamo of a country it is, it's just unbelievable. And the churches have grown. The first missionaries went there around 1963 from the Brethren churches. And there the, the word has, has spread, the gospel has spread. And one of the most exciting things for me about South Korea is to drive around at nighttime and see a little red cross, red cross, red cross. Well, here's one cross there, another one there. I see here, there. Well, they were the crosses on buildings. And that meant there was a church there, a church there, a church there, a church there. A church there. And throughout the towns there'd be hundreds of little red crosses indicating that there was a church of some form in that place. Unbelievable. I used to watch as a, as a army captain would wander into the, into the services that I was about to conduct and in behind him would come 40 young soldiers demurely following their captain in to hear the word of God. Wow, I thought, what a good thing to be, a captain in the Korean army. Uh, you can tell your soldiers to come to church with you. And they came and they each one brought a Bible as well. Amazing. But of course, North Korea is there and it's always threatening 
But there is a Bible school put up, uh, the Glow Friends are helping a Bible school, and we call it CTI, Christian Training Institute, and I had many opportunities to go there and to teach, and again, uh, those young people that I've been teaching there have gone on. Some of them have become missionaries, some of them are now church leaders, others of them are teachers now themselves, and I have incredible joy to realize that God is continuing to do that work there. But now here's a very personal thing. In 1995, while we were in Romania, Glad said to me one day, I think I've got a lump. Would you check? So I checked. Definitely something there. What do you do when there's nothing? There's no system. There's nothing. There's no chemist shops. There's no doctors that you can see. I do remember, I did remember, I'd seen a sign which said polyclinic x-ray, but for the life of me I couldn't think where I saw it. And once glad it had this lump there, I walked and walked and walked every street of that town looking for the polyclinic, hoping against hope that there'd be a doctor, someone there. I couldn't find it. I could not find it. We were at the end of our tether to a degree when, when the Lord brought it to our minds as he should have, well, we should have been there, that we are not to walk streets willy-nilly, but we are to trust in the Lord with all of our hearts. And if we do that, then guess what's going to happen? He will guide us. He will make our path straight. I, I said to Glad as I put my arm around her, because she, she was really distressed by this time, as you can imagine, as was I. I said, I'm going out now with this prayer. The Lord will guide me now. And I walked out of that house, down that road, that road, that road, that road. I've been there a hundred times, I thought. And I saw this sign. Dr. Daniela Popescu, medical specialist. Isn't that amazing? It was the size of an A4 piece of paper. And I went and knocked on the door. Is the doctor in the house? Da. Does she speak English? Da. Can I see her? Five o'clock this evening. Duh. So I took her there. And the doctor examined Glad. She was so sweet, so nice. She said, definitely there's a lump. Definitely it's suspicious. Definitely you need... But she said, I beg of you, please don't do anything here in this country. She said, we are very good doctors, but every system, all our sterilization, all our x-rays, everything is now broken. Nothing works. Please, I beg of you, don't have any further treatment here. Now, to show that God precedes you in all these kind of circumstances, let me simply say that earlier on, I was going off preaching somewhere in Romania, and I was going to be away for two weeks, and glad she said, well, please take me to Bucharest. And I said, okay. Because in Bucharest, there was a couple from South Australia who were working in an orphanage. They were with World Vision, and Glad said, I'll stay with them. So I took Glad down there, 
and this is several months before the, the lump business happened, and she was there with them. And when I went to pick Glad up, the fellow said, oh, hey, guess what? Shell Motor Company is coming in, oil company has come into Romania, and they're setting up service stations all over the countryside, and they've brought a doctor. And he, he's to treat their staff, no doubt, but he's also available for foreigners, provided they can pay in dollars. And this is his phone number. I said, thank you very much, and put it in my pocket and went home, never, never thinking that I'm going to need that phone number. So here's Glad. We've seen Dr. Daniela. She says, it's a problem. You need further, further investigation. Go to your country. Well, that's too far away. So I rang. And she, our friends have said, the doctor's name is Don McKenzie. So I rang. Very difficult to ring. You've got to go to the, phone, uh, the post office and book a call. and Very difficult. Anyhow, I got through. Is Dr. Don McKenzie there, please? No, he is gone. He is on leave. Oh, my heart fell. But there is another doctor here. May I speak to that doctor? Duh. Next minute. Hello, my name's Dr. Christina. Oh, praise God. I told her. She laughed at me. She said, do you know where I was yesterday? She said, you're the very first patient I've spoken to since I came to Romania. Yesterday, I was in the Windsor Breast Care Clinic. And you were my first phone call since I came to Romania. I told her, she says, oh, I'd love to see your little wife. I'm sorry, it's going to cost you $90. I said, no problem. Now, this is 300 k's away. When can you come? I said, uh, tomorrow? She said, sure, I'll see you at 9 in the morning. So, round up, get my $90 together, plus a bit more, and away we went. We knocked on her door. She checked Glad over and she said, most definitely there's a suspicious lump there. Mm, she said, I could do a biopsy perhaps, but I'd have to send it to England. Can you go to England? I said, can we, can we go to England? We're stuck here in Romania. Can we go to England? I don't know whether there's a travel agent. I don't know whether there's anything. Can we go to England? Uh, uh, yeah, we can go to England. Oh, good. So she picks up a phone. Now, Shell had done something I didn't know existed, and that was they put a phone that you could direct dial to England from Romania. I'd never seen one before. There, it didn't happen. You had to go through all the exchanges and all the government stuff. But she had a phone, and she dialed. Next minute, she said, oh, dear, look, I'm sorry to wake you. Just look into my dressing table beside the bed, please. Get my, uh, yeah, I need the phone number of Dr. Sue out at the clinic, you know. Oh, thank you, Dee. Go back to sleep now. And, and so, next minute she's ringing Dr. Sue. Dr. Sue, I'm sorry to wake you this unearthly hour. Look, I've got a lovely little Australian lady here who needs to see you. When can she see you? Tuesday? Good. She'll be there. She'll be there. I went home to our friends, because we were staying with these friends of ours, and I said, we've got to go to England. When? Uh, I've got to be there by Tuesday. Uh, uh, how, do we find, how do you book a plane ticket in Romania when there's no travel agents or anything like that? I mean, you're in Australia, it's so easy to do anything, but there. And our friend said, you wouldn't believe it. 
Last week we had a young boy come and knock on our door and he says, I'm trying to set up a kind of a travel business and look, here's my number, here's my card and if I can set up a travel business, it'll be really nice and if I can work with you people like the foreigners here, it'll be really handy because, you know, you've got dollars. So the next minute I'm ringing up this fellow. He was round in about half an hour. He says, uh, when do you want to go? I said, we have to be in England on, um, on Tuesday. We have an appointment at nine o'clock. He said, well... Probably the first thing I could do is get you on a Lufthansa flight out of Romania on, on Saturday. Now, this is Thursday. And I said, yeah, that sounds pretty good. He says, it's a 21-day return flight, and it'll cost you $900. I said, okay. And he says, we need cash. Cash? I have $100. He said, I need cash. $100. Well, God goes ahead, you know. He precedes you. We had other friends in Adelaide, uh, from Adelaide in, in Romania, and it so happened that he is an accountant and he was an auditor for Coca-Cola and all those sorts of companies through that part of the world. And, and we'd actually hoped to see him. And I rang him and I said, Adrian, we were coming around to see you while we're down here, but I got a bit of a problem and I have to rush back to our city and get some money Money? You need money? I said, yeah, yeah, Glad's got a medical problem. We're going to have to need to go to England. And he says, money? How much did you want? I said, well, I got $100 in my pocket and I've put that down as a deposit. I've got to go back and get another $800. He says, ha, I went to the bank today. We're going to Egypt next week and I got $800 out to go to Egypt next week. You can have that if you like. (laughs) So there was our $800. Amazing. Isn't God good? He goes in front of us. You know. He's there. He, he knows our days even before it happens to us. Well, I could go on and on and on. We, went, we got to England. We stayed with some dear friends who had been missionaries with us. Glad had a surgery. That was another story. It was malignant cancer. Long story. You have to read that, that little magazine. You'll see a bit more of it there. Glad said to me, this is the verse God has given to me. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. That's the scripture God gave to Glad at that time. What an amazing thing. Well, poor dear, she had a surgery. And then we went back to Romania. Then we were, it was advised we come back to Australia for any further stuff like chemo and all that. Glad never needed chemo. But how can we ever ignore a God who is so wonderfully good and a, a God who cares for us and a God who's already foreseen what our needs are and a God who provides in such an incredible way? This is, I say, God preparing us for this next big test that we were to have. And I'm sorry, this is going to take me a couple of minutes. Can you bear it if I... This was the third of my series on those tapes there. And I'll do it as quick as I can. Around about 2002, I think it was, GLAD started to show problems. And she couldn't follow a line across... She couldn't read around the circle when we were having our home Bible studies. She begged me not to embarrass her by 
asking her to read and she was very self-conscious about it. Something wasn't right. Now, don't forget that she was a 100 words a minute shorthand typist. She was a clever little girl. She was a secretary for the British and Foreign Bible Society when I married her and took her away to India. So she had all the skills. But Karen used to come when she had a problem and, and he was glad trying to get ahead of Karen, trying to remember her times table. One's two is two. Two, two's a four. Three, two's a six. That's glad. Trying to be ahead of Karen because Karen was coming to try and help her with these things that were really worrying her. And then the problem came, she couldn't sign her name. And she practiced and practiced and practiced signing her name. And so embarrassed one day, she went down into the shops at uh, Plaza with Debbie and she was returning something to one of the shops there. And as she was returning it, the girl, the countess said, please sign there and and can't do it. And the girl laughed, everyone can sign their name. And Glad came out of there absolutely mortified because she couldn't sign her name. You can imagine not being able to, I don't think you can, not being able to sign your name. She asked me to prepare a record of all her problems to take to a specialist, and you can't read all that, but if you think about it, it says, I can't express my thoughts, and different ones of us noticed that she couldn't finish her sentences and all sorts of things. I, I couldn't repeat what had just been told to me. I can't take in what I'm reading. I, I can no longer spell. I can't add up. My writing is shaky, and it was all over the shop. And these were her problems. So the specialists use what doctors have got apparently in their surgery, a a 30-point test, and that's what it looks like, a standardised mini mental state examination and and so on. And there's 30 questions there, and it's got to be done in a time frame, and you get a score for each of the questions you answer right. And as it goes down, well, Glad got 24 for the first time she did that. She got 24. And the specialist was saying, well, I'll try you on these tablets, and I can only keep giving you these tablets if you improve by two points, so or three points or whatever, uh, you've got to get at least 26 or 27 next time, otherwise I can't keep giving you these expensive tablets. They were really expensive. So poor Glad, she got me to coach her every time we went anywhere near the specialist. What year is this? Come on, what year is it? Are you sure? Okay, what season is it? What month is this? What's today's date? And these were the questions, and she had 10 seconds to answer them. And then came the cruncher. Take seven from 100 and keep on taking seven from 100. Well, world, spell world backwards. I tell you what, these were the things that made it absolutely traumatised her. You can imagine the tears, the distress, when she just could not do it. Part of the test was to draw those two shapes. That's what she tried. She couldn't do it. I did that one. Mine's not quite right. But she just could not do it. And all these cognitive things 
Well, the end result was that they did scans. And I'm hoping that your brain looks like this. Nick can tell you if that's a pretty good one. But if you've got Alzheimer's, it will increasingly become like this, where the brain is being shrunk and destroyed and its function is being taken from you. And then the cruncher came when he, the doctor ordered a five-hour cognitive test that absolutely destroyed Glenn. Absolutely. And I've never forgotten the day she came running to me, crying, crying, crying. What's going to happen to me? She said. And I put my arms around her. And friends, I want to tell you that that's the day I died. I. Up to that point in our lives, our whole ministry and marriage had been about what God was going to do through me. I was the big mouth. I was the Bible teacher. I was the missionary preacher. I was the international speaker. I was I, 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 I. That day, I died. That day, glad became the key to my life. It's as if God was saying, you've been a big mouth up to now, now shut up and do something. Be something, not what you say, but who you are and what you do. That's going to be the message from here on in. Because I'd vowed, in sickness or in health, for better or for worse, till death do us part. She asked me to take her to India. She was struggling, I can tell you. But she can't help herself. There's a baby, she grabs it. She did. One of the young fellows that I taught in our youth class, Bible classes, is now the owner, if you like, the director of two Christian schools, and he invited us to come and speak to his students and glad found the preppy class. That was the end of her. And she's there. But what you've seen and I've seen is this. That was 2010 with Marion. That's 2013, one of the last times I brought her here to church. That was January this year. And that was last Sunday. Last Sunday. Friends, what do we say about this? Well, God's in it. God precedes us and he follows us. And Jeremiah had it all together. He said, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed for his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O God. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. Friends, the Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. And he went on to say this, though he brings grief, he will show compassion so great as his unfailing love. He does not willingly bring affliction or grief to the children of men. Not willingly. There's always a reason. And do you know that that little video that went out that Fiona did for us, that little video... 
This last week it crossed 1.93 million. 1.93 million. Unbelievable. What CVC has done is add a gospel message to that. And that little song that those girls in America put together, as a result of that song, 65,000 new people in the last six, seven weeks have listened to that first video and hopefully that gospel message is around. Now I'm here and I sit down and I look after my sweet wife and, and there's God doing something that I would never have dreamed of. Never in my wildest life would I have dreamed of. My song, Glad Song, was that one I told you. This is my song. Ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His way is perfect. His ways are just. He's a faithful God who does no wrong. Good and upright is he. We have learned to stand upon those promises. Friends, Glad and I have learned to trust in the living God. And I told you last week, he's a God who loves. He's a God who cares. He's a God who enables. He's a God who directs. He's a God who opens and shuts doors. You've seen him do that in our life story. And wonderfully, he protects and he provides. He does. And God's so good. He really is. So I'm sorry if I bored you, but I just want you to know that this God of ours is the living God, a great God. And you can trust him too. If you don't know him, then I feel sorry for you. If you don't give him opportunity to allow him to use you as his masterpieces, as his instruments, then your life is the poorer for it. But when you see God opening doors, shutting doors, God directing, God providing, God caring, God blessing, even though there are difficult days, You know that he precedes you. He's there in front of you. He's already there. And he follows you. And his blessings upon you. So if you don't know him, you need to. If you haven't yet learned to truly trust him in your Christian life, then you need to do that. Step out in faith. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, says Paul. But of course the big issue was, I am crucified with Christ. And when you are crucified, when there's no you in the matter, no I, 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 then that's when God takes over and he has opportunity to do great things in your life and through you to touch many lives. Let me pray. Lord, we just thank you that you're a God who loves and cares. You are a God who supplies. You're a God who keeps us. We just ask that you bless us all now. And thank you that we've had the privilege of sharing of your faithfulness and goodness over these many days. And Lord, we just thank you. We know that in the future you have got perfect plans for us and your plans are always for our good. And even though sometimes the pathway seems a little difficult, we thank you that you are there to encourage and help us. So we give you our thanks and ask you to bless us all in our Saviour's name. Amen. If you want copies of those DVDs, then Sean will be busy. Um, He's got them there. Thank you. God bless you all. Thank you. Tell our tea and coffee on the deck. <laughs>